This episode is brought to you by WeatherGuard Lightning Tech. At WeatherGuard, we make wind turbine lightning protection easy. If you're a wind farm operator, stop settling for damaged turbine blades and constant downtime. Get your uptime back with our strike tape lightning protection system. Learn more in today's show notes or visit weatherguardwind.com slash strike tape. Welcome back. I'm Alan Hall. I'm Dan Blewett, and this is the Uptime Podcast, where we talk about wind energy, engineering, lightning protection, and ways to keep your wind turbines running. Hey, welcome back to the Uptime Podcast. I'm your co-host, Dan Blewett. No Alan Hall today. He'll be back in a couple of weeks, but the show will continue to go on as scheduled. So this week... I'm going to catch you up on some 2021 trends and tech to kind of follow up on and maybe forecast a little bit. So there's a lot of interesting things that have developed even just in the last year of this podcast, and we are closing in. This is our 47th episode, Uh, so we're actually getting pretty close to uh, our our year anniversary. So number one, we thank you for listening uh, to the Uptime Podcast. It's grown significantly over the years. Um, We've gotten some great feedback made some great connections and hopefully made your day, your commute, um, you know, what your, your work from home, whatever it is, a little bit better. Um, so today we're going to talk about some trends and tech, um, six different ones. So number one, we'll talk about the size of turbines and why you should consider following that uh, in 2021. Crawling robots versus wire cable robots versus drones. That seems to be a battle that's being waged um, to see which of those technologies will be maybe not most viable. I think that's the wrong way of putting it, but which ones are going to become the forefront um, and the the premium solutions for a lot of these inspections, cleanings, and maintenance operations because the technology continues to evolve. And as it continues to uh, gain traction and, and win more service jobs, these technologies are going to start to, you know, one's going to pull ahead of the other. And of course, not every solution is going to be right for every type of maintenance or inspection. But anyway, we'll chat a little bit more about that. Um, Different areas for non-traditional massive wind farms. So two examples that we'll chat about are distributed wind and traffic powered. That's another interesting one. Who knows if that will really catch on, but it's something to keep, uh, keep in mind ecosystem type offshore wind projects. This is something we've talked about a number of times uh, over the past year where people are starting to do other things in their offshore projects, you know, perhaps, you know, do ocean research, uh, perhaps cultivate, you know, like an aquaculture lab, whether it's shellfish or something else. And it seems like that trend, you know, more and more people seem to be thinking about that. And it doesn't seem like that's going to go away as these ideas crop up of, of ways to you know, make these offshore platforms and uh, I mean, essentially these big rigs uh, are ecosystems, you know, to some degree. And, and can we make them ecosystems and make them as multifunctional as possible rather than just generating electricity? We've already put all the work to install it. What else can we do out there? I think that trend's going to continue. 3D printing, we'll chat about that. And then two more EVTOLs. Um, and their potential use in offshore wind sites. So if you listen to our other uh, podcast on aerospace engineering called Struck, you know, we talk a bunch about EVTOLs, which is electric vertical takeoff and landing aircraft. And uh, obviously a helicopter is a VTOL. It's not electric. Uh, but a lot of these EVTOLs are essentially electric helicopters or, or similar aircraft. And 
you know, their applications, if some of these uh, offshore wind farms become, you know, ecosystems or they have platforms where, you know, we're going to need to transport crews out there consistently, EVTOLs are probably going to make a lot of sense to service some of those offshore uh, wind farms. And lastly, we'll talk about misinformation, birds, human health, noise property values, uh, some of these common issues and what to look for going forward. All right, first up on the docket here. So there's some news uh, from Vestas. So Vestas has just now released their new flagship competitor for, you know, biggest wind turbine in the world. And so the V236 15 megawatt prototype was just announced on the 10th of February. And this is going to have a 236 meter rotor uh, diameter. And that's, uh, you know, 14 meters longer than the Siemens Gamesa. 222DD, which has a 222 meter uh, diameter rotor. So obviously this was probably not a, a you know, it's probably not a shocker considering Vestas is uh, the largest supplier of wind turbines and they did not have a fighter in the ring, right? For largest, there was the GE Halle 8X, there's again the Siemens Gamesa 222DD, and now Vestas has their competitor in the ring with the V236, 15 megawatts. So that's just been announced. They're hoping to have their first prototype installed in the summer of 2022 is reporting by Windpower Monthly, and hopefully they will be up and running in 2024. And so, you know, this is uh, an interesting development where we've talked about this prior, you know, how big can these get? Uh, how big can the capacity get? And is this going to be maybe a plateau for a little while? So now that all the major competitors have this big turbine, it'll be interesting to see how this plays out and, you know, what we start to see as these get installed, because with bigger scale, there's going to be problems. You know, there's, uh, you know, Vestas had some issues with lightning um, throughout the country this year. And as these big prototypes get rolled out, you know, scale is a factor. Now with Vestas finally getting in the ring, it's just going to be interesting to see are there any significant bumps in offshore wind size after this one, right? It seems like, you know, there's been a number of orders for Halle 8Xs. There's been a number of orders for uh, 222DDs from Siemens uh, Gamesa. So is this going to be sort of that leveling off period where these need to be out into the wild and performing before we start to see 16, 17, 18, 20 megawatt? My guess is probably, um, but you know, yet to be seen. So it'd be interesting to see what happens in 2021. If anything news rolled out, obviously there's always upgrades to onshore and all sorts of different, um, you know, different platforms, but you know, this is a pretty interesting development with Vestas now having the, uh, the largest rotor diameter in the world. All right, next up, and this is an, a, a really interesting trend. So, uh, we're hopefully going to chat with, um, a ahead of one of the robotics companies coming up here soon uh, in the next couple of months. And we've talked with uh, Danis Cruz, who's co-founder of Aronace. We've also uh, talked with CEO uh, Danny Ellis of SkySpecs. So we've gotten some good um, input from some of the leaders in robotics uh, in the wind sector. And so right now it seems like there's, again, this sort of duel happening, right? Drones uh, clearly have tons of utility um, for operations and maintenance, for inspections and uh, robotics. So Arones, their robotic tech is uh, you know, a guided wire system, and they can do a lot with that without having some of the, the potential limiting factors of, you know, a very complex robot that needs to have, you know, suction 
to maintain traction on a blade and, and not fall off. And then of course there's blade bug and they're doing exactly that. They're, they're crawling robot, um, you know, uses suction, other technology to stay stuck to the blade and, and physically walk up and down uh, the turbine blade surface. So it'll be interesting to see how all this fleshes out as these get more and more um, you know, service contracts and they hone their product. And just like anything else, once it gets out there into the market and they're working with it, they're going to see what works, what doesn't, how they can evolve. You know, uh, technologies continue to evolve very rapidly. Battery technology is a limiting factor for drones. Um, you know, suction technology is going to be a limiting factor for any um, walking robot, stuff like that. And as these, uh, you know, again, like technology is accelerating so fast. So as those challenges get tackled, you know, use cases are going to change rapidly. And it'll be really interesting to see how this fleshes out in the next year or two of, uh, and you know, obviously they're all going to have their niche. So there's going to be things that drones can do that a robot could never do. And there's going to be things that robots can do much faster and easily, more easily than uh, a drone could do. So it's not to say that anything's going to replace one or the other. They're all going to have their niche probably. And, uh, but it'll it'd be interesting to see how these technologies continue to evolve over the next couple years. Next up. So if you haven't seen this, uh, we'll post a link in the description of the show, uh, here on, in podcast land and on YouTube. But traffic powered wind is a really interesting. So this is a basically a vertical axis wind turbine. And as cars zoom down the highway, you know, the uh, the wind produced, you know, by a car, by a bus, uh, whatever, it's going to push these wind turbines that are anchored onto or installed on the median. So this is also um, kind of in the same vein as distributed wind, distributed wind, obviously being smaller wind turbines, uh, still of the traditional, you know, horizontal um, you know, or could be vertical axis, but distributed wind is obviously the smaller wind turbines where they can be, you know, placed in much uh, more residential areas, places where traditional farm wind farm could not go. And so these two um, sectors of the, or segments of the market, you know, tr potentially traffic powered um, and distributed wind, they're gonna start to probably get some traction. And I don't know about the technology of traffic. That's still a really early budding technology. But as we go looking to, you know, create more and more energy from renewable sources and to find little gaps and, you know, that are not filled by the huge commercial wind farm and, you know, the vast amount of capital that takes, uh, you know, the traffic stuff is really interesting. You know, who knows if it will take hold, who knows if it'll make sense, if it'll be viable because there's more than just installing, you know, this vertical axis wind turbine in the middle of a highway, you know, there's accidents, you know, what happens in car wrecks, you know, if a tire blows in a piece of tire shrapnel hits one, you know, is that taking it offline? Where are the cables going to be run? There's lots of other factors involved. Distributed wind, the same thing. There's, there's just lots of um, unknowns as this becomes a more, as this market hopefully starts to grow in the US. And we'll be talking to someone uh, about distributed wind shortly here on the show. Um, but these two markets are, there's, they're untapped for the most part here in the, especially here in the US. So it'll be interesting to see how those two start to take shape because there's definitely lots of land that's got the wind and there's going to be, you know, small businesses, farms, a lot of them in the Midwest that could potentially benefit for from wind power. And as the, the Biden administration moves forward with new policies, it might become favorable for the environment of all sorts of uh, devices like that, not only distributed traditional wind wind turbines, but also sort of out, outside the box stuff like the traffic power. So it'll be interesting to see how the little guys start to fare 
um, because you know commercial large scale wind projects have proven their effectiveness. They've proven that they can drive electricity costs down, uh, but the little stuff hasn't yet. But there seems like there's definitely a market for it, and as the technology um, and the the grid and, and the infrastructure improves, it'll be really it'll be really interesting to see how that takes off. So next is the ecosystem type offshore wind project, and we've reported on a couple of these uh, in previous shows where they're just saying, hey, we've got an installation of wind turbines out here. Maybe we can build a couple of platforms. Maybe we can build um, you know, other, whether it's housing, whether it's labs, whether it's underwater you know, aquaculture um, you know, infrastructure where we can say, hey, we can do some research out here. We can have you know, maybe humans out here for a couple of weeks at a time. Um, you know, we can do different things using these offshore wind turbines, which are already sort of you know, anchored in place and, and providing a base where it's not going to be a significant additional cost to add on, you know, a, a, a base for a, you know, a helipad and an aquaculture lab and some rudimentary housing to keep researchers out, researchers out there for, a, you know, a week or two, stuff like that. I think these are interesting ideas, you know, the viability of which is certainly yet to be proven. But again, you know, we've had oil rigs and, you know, oil rig workers working on these platforms for months on end for you know decades now, right? So it's clear that we can we can keep uh, workers, we can keep you know human beings comfortable enough, um, and who knows about the living conditions? I know it's a, a incredibly dangerous job working on an oil rig, but you know the housing and feeding these people and and maintaining uh, the work environment on an oil rig, it's been something that's been viable, right, for a number of decades. So taking that idea and saying, all right, we have all these offshore wind uh, projects. Is there a way where we can do ocean research? Is that we can do aquaculture? We can do other things. Um, it's an interesting idea. And I think that's one to kind of keep tabs on. And we'll keep tabs on that here on the show. Um, but I think it's going to make sense at some point because you're already sinking, you know, $100 million into an offshore wind project. You know, what's another million dollars to have a really nice accessible lab or, or something else that perhaps helps to study, you know, the impact of wind farms on the environment, whatever it might be. And obviously there's lots of other startups, you know, there could be companies that work on, you know, desalination could be an example. I'm just spitballing, but you know, there's lots of other things that could potentially start to partner and, you know, grab the coattails of these wind projects. And I think it's a really interesting idea because as you, again, you start to have all this capital behind these projects and as they become, you know, pretty consistent and we know about the technology, they know how to build them effectively, quick, quickly, cheaply, you know, relatively cheaply, um, you know, as those costs come down, say, hey, what what else can we do with this? Like, wh- how can we think outside the box? I think that's a really interesting thing. And I'm, I'm, I'm hopeful to see more companies uh, try to innovate in that space. And along those same lines, uh, like I said, our, in our other podcast, we talk about EVTOLs, and so electric vertical takeoff and landing aircraft, you know, as as battery technology improves and, uh, you know, as composite technology has improved, we're finally getting close to the point where these there, there's many, many companies. There's uh, Joby, Joby Aviation is probably the forefront. Uh, there's Archer, there's Kitty Hawk. There's a number of startups who are actively in this race to to get a commercially viable electric vertical takeoff and landing vehicle. 
out into the market. And if you're not familiar with this, it's, it's really fascinating, but they're trying to essentially make urban air mobility a, a real thing. And, you know, I think in the past this was, you know, connecting building to building in New York City or getting someone from, you know, Long Island to to the city, you know, in, a, in an hour, or an hour and a half versus five hours, right? To reduce some of those urban commutes, um, that's yet to be seen. But what does seem like could be very commercially viable would be transport to an offshore wind site. So if we did have this, this uh, part where, hey, we need a couple of technicians out, you know, at an offshore wind farm for a, a couple of days or a week, and we have built, you know, housing for them or, or whatever it is, you know, electric vertical takeoff and landing aircraft seem like a pretty good fit for that, where they can just sort of puddle jump from, you know, the, the Florida Keys over to the, the, the wind farm in the Gulf, you know, if there was one, and it'd be a short, um, you know, environmentally friendly because it's electric powered and battery powered. And, uh, and, and that seems like that's going to be part of that ecosystem one day. That's my, my, my forecast. Because helicopters, obviously, they're the way you do that now, right? That's how you get to an oil rig is, is via helicopter. And, uh, you know, helicopters can be dangerous. They, you know, require a lot of energy. And, um, you know, the EVTL market, there's a lot of engineers that are working to solve that problem, to reduce the cost of these trips back and forth. Helicopters are not cheap. Um, jet fuel is not cheap. You know, all those things. So this will be interesting to see how those can kind of coexist and, and how that works. Um, not to mention the fact that many wind sites are very remote, right? So as you start to look at, you know, you have a wind farm up in the mountains that would take you an hour and a half to travel to by, by car. Um, can you jump in your company's EVTOL and fly to the top of the mountain in 20 minutes? That seems like a very viable thing. And so as, you know, wind farms become more and more remote and obviously tons of them are already extremely remote in very harsh environments, you know, some of that, um, that, that vehicle travel could probably be replaced by EVTOL travel. So of course, obviously these are very windy environments. So there's lots of challenges with aviation, right? In those, in those, uh, those environments, but the EVTOL market is seemingly going to play some role in the future, um, you know, with, with wind farms, because again, they're in harsh environments, they're offshore, they're in the mountains, they're in snowy regions. Um, lots of times it, you know, air travel, especially if it's quick and economical is, is probably going to start to make sense. All right, the last technology that I want to talk about that I think is is really fascinating, and I'd encourage you. We'll put again, we'll put links here in the show, and we are also going to have someone in the three D printing space talk to us on the show. Um, hopefully, coming up soon uh, is the three D printing of you know wind turbine concrete bases and potentially other components. And I think they're just starting to scratch the surface of this. We've uh, reported that you know ORE Catapult in Scotland, you know this incubator, they've been um, installing three D printing capacity there. And they're trying to see the viability of testing prototypes for new wind turbine blades. Um, you know, Cobod and other companies are already printing concrete bases in buildings. So this could have major implications for construction, you know, speeding some of these, uh, these builds along, um, whether it's building the concrete bases themselves, building auxiliary buildings, um, lots of different stuff, and potentially building these more cost effectively in smaller nations, you know, like if you're in a small island nation, it might be much more cost effective to quickly build a concrete um, based tower system or concrete, you know, auxiliary buildings on site rather than, you know, have to do precast and all the traditional, um, you know, shipping and all that stuff. So 3D printing is going to continue to evolve 
And, you know, as we start to look at wind turbine blades, you know, if there's a lightning strike on the tip or there's otherwise tip damage or you need to uh, install a blade extension, you know, could a 3D, uh, 3D printed blade tip extension be the answer to that? Could a 3D printed uh, section of blade to replace a damaged section be the answer to that? Those are all interesting questions that it'll be, uh, I'll, I'll be curious to see if those can be solved as some of these incubators and other uh, startup companies continue to explore the limits of 3D printing. And lastly, and I think this is something to really be concerned about, is is the some of the misinformation about uh, wind energy. So we talked about this with Paul Guype, who was a guest on, I believe it was episode 37. Um, and Paul's a wind energy advocate and, and really a lifer. And I think he has his eyes wide open about a lot of these issues that have plagued, you know, the advancement of wind in, uh, the wind industry in the past. And one of them is misinformation. So it's funny that actually on Facebook, uh, if you follow the Weather Guard uh, wind energy page, you know, we've been, you know, putting out a lot of uh, content there and we've we promoted just a couple of educational articles recently. And it's fascinating getting some of the feedback. So one of the things we, you know, we pr promoted a couple articles that are purely educational in nature about, you know, trailing edge durations, power curve upgrades, other stuff like that. And uh, you know what the comments for some of those articles are? They have nothing to do with the article themselves. It's like, well, hey, this article is about trailing edge durations. Oh, better to, you know, it'll certainly kill birds more effectively. Or, you know, this other, you know, power curve upgrades. Oh, best way to upgrade these, just get rid of the darn things and, and replace it with, you know, clean coal. It's fascinating some of the misconceptions that are popping up even on Facebook where people are just opposed to wind turbines. And we're not even selling, you know, right? like WeatherGuard Lightning Tech is not selling wind turbines. They're just... Um, helping to, to to maintain them with lightning protection, but at the same time, it's 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 comical to see the quotes and the uh, the comments about some of these articles that have literally nothing to do with birds. They have literally nothing to do with noise or, or human health or some of these other issues. But there's a lot of people who are opponents of wind energy. I think everyone knows that. Um, but a lot of these opponents are seemingly propped up with misinformation. You know, we we talked about a couple of stories and research studies earlier in the year about um, bird deaths and how often are birds uh, killed and negatively impacted by wind turbines. You know, same thing with bats. And more and more studies are coming out that are confirming that it's it's not a significant risk and health hazard to birds, um, especially not when compared to the oil and gas industries. But yet, you know, the oil and gas industries and you know your local coal plant they've been there for decades, so you're not really drawing your eye up at them, whereas this new installation of wind turbines, you know, environmental activists are saying, oh, hey, we got to, you know, we need to slow down and make sure this is safe for the birds, whereas the coal has been polluting the atmosphere uh, for decades and certainly killing all of us more slowly from pollution, right? So it, it, it's interesting to see why some people oppose it. And and so the bigger, my bigger point here is not the fact that this some of this misinformation does exist. And of course, to, to play both sides of this, we, we do still need to track the long-term implications of these machines, right? So noise does pose some sort of effect on humans, right? You can't um, expect to constantly have a hum or an electromagnetic, electromagnetic field that you're suddenly living with for 50 years, and maybe there's some effect that we just don't know of. Maybe we can't measure that in 10 years, but we can measure it in 50 years. Just like we know we've had foods that the FDA has cleared that 10 years later we found, hey, these were actually pretty hazardous. You know, the hydrogenated oils were a great example. 
that was cleared by everyone. Uh, they were in Oreo cookies for, for many, many years. And then suddenly, hey, we've figured out now, finally, that hydrogenated Oreos are terrible for you. Um, so it's not to say that there isn't some, um, some, some, some of this information is probably correct. And we, there's also an agnostic issue where we don't know yet. Just because wind energy has been around for 10, 20, 30, 40 years doesn't mean we know everything about it. We will certainly find out down the road that certain things that we thought were harmless were actually had some harmful effect. Hopefully it's very minimal and it's probably very minimal, but we don't know for certain everything right now. Now more and more studies are coming out and you know we know that there's uh, accepted noise levels that wind turbines have to meet in these new installations you know we try to uh, when i say we i'm just saying the, the wind industry in general is trying to you know install measures to be safe for bats to deter birds from flying into them etc cetera, etc cetera, and even to to prevent light pollution at night um you know we're hopefully gonna be talking with someone who uh, you know deals with um the aviation obstruction lights with wind turbines because those can be a nuisance for people at night and how they can mitigate that nuisance. So all these issues are, are issues for some people who live with them. And there's some people who are very outspoken opponents of it who have maybe one in their neighborhood or are afraid their property value is, has dropped because of it. Um, but the the bigger point here is the the campaign against them sometimes is can be fraught with mis misinformation. And so there's a lot of myth debunking that's done so if you go to um you know any of the governmental websites there's a lot of like fact checking and, and myth uh busting pdfs should go on from the climaterealityproject.org that gives some pretty compelling facts about some of these myths about uh you know does it harm wildlife you know does it kill uh property value you know do, is it too expensive is it actually economically effective and viable so one of the things as you know as we saw with the presidential election um, no matter which side you're on, we saw that misinformation can spread virally and be an extremely negative force. So it'll be interesting to see as the wind industry evolves and of course is, is largely accepted by most people, right? A minority voice, voice can speak very loudly. And I think the vast majority of people have a minimal opinion of wind energy in general. Um, certainly not an overly strong one. And of course, so again, a lot of the minority voices can be quite loud. But there will, con there will continue to be a major need for messaging and for keeping misinformation in check and, you know, and just to continue to, to prop up an industry that's hopefully doing good um, for the environment and for the cost of energy as energy prices continue to rise. So that'll be another interesting thing that I think is worth tracking and, and just something to think about because all these industries is their they're lobbied for and and pushed through with policy etc um real human beings have to check off on those policies and have to sign them off on these regulations so misinformation can run really deep and if it gets um to the point where a couple of the people who need to sign off on legislation are buying into that misinformation that can be a real major problem so something to check up on in 2020 so again thank you for listening um we will hopefully be back to uh, our normal format soon we're going to have uh some some great guests coming up um alan will be, at, be back in a couple weeks and uh we thank you again for listening to the uptime podcast be sure to subscribe here on itunes Stitcher, Spotify, YouTube, wherever you listen, leave us a review. Thank you so much. And we'll see you here next week.
downtime causing you financial pain and putting a stop to your power production for months on end? It's no secret, lightning strike damage is a major cause of wind turbine downtime. This damage is preventable with our easy-to-install strike tape lightning protection system for wind turbine blades. Our incredible engineering, build quality, materials, and edge sealants withstand up to five times more abuse in the toughest weather and lightning conditions. And we've got the research to prove it. If you're tired of constant downtime, we can help. Reach out to us at weatherguardwind.com and schedule a free call. We'll get your uptime back in no time.